0: Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you on this Lord's Day. Today as we gather together as the church, singing praise to our great God, what a glorious thought it is. To know that we are catching just a momentary glimpse, a dimly lit momentary glimpse of what awaits us as God's people in eternity. When those who are in Christ will be gathered together in the presence of God and there we will spend eternity singing praise to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to whom all glory is due. What a day that will be. The last time I had the privilege to share the Word of God with you, several Sundays back now, our text was Psalm 1. In the first psalm, we saw a contrast between the way of the blessed man and the way of the wicked man. The blessed man is rooted and planted and sustained by the law of God. He delights in it and he bears fruit. So also Psalm 1 told us that the wicked man will perish Uh, His way is destruction, and like the chaff, he too is sustained by nothing. There's nothing to hold him, and he is blown away by the wind. The first psalm bids its reader to choose which way they will live, because there is only two ways. The path of righteousness through Christ Jesus our Lord, or the path of the wicked, mired in sin and rebellion against God. You see, Psalm 1 deals with the individual and the path that lies before every person. Christ's righteousness or man's wickedness and the consequence thereof. That's the message. Well, today we're going to be continuing in the book of the Psalms. Our text this morning is Psalm 2, where Psalm 1 speaks to the individual person. Psalm 2 expands the focus outward to the nations, and to the world. The first psalm deals with the two ways that individuals must choose from, and the second psalm deals with the two ways that the nations and the world must choose from. Please take your copy of God's Word and turn there with me, Psalm 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have them available in the back for you to use. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please take one home with you. Uh, It would be a joy to know that you have a copy of God's Word in your hand and that you are reading it. Uh, Let us now turn our attention to God's inerrant, infallible, and inspired Word. Regarding its authorship, Psalm 2 does not tell us who wrote it. However, Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, tells us that this psalm was spoken through the mouth of King David by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 2 is King David's words. But Acts 4 reminds us that it was by the Holy Spirit that David uttered these words. Dear ones, let us be reminded that though men penned the Bible, they were merely instruments in the hands of him who orchestrates all things. Thus the words of Psalm 2 are God's words. Psalm 2 is often referred to as one of the royal psalms. The royal psalms are a subset of individual psalms contained within the collective 150. These royal psalms share a common theme. They emphasize God who reigns over all. And they often point to Israel's anointed king, King David. But these psalms ultimately point to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord. Psalm 2 is therefore royally fulfilled in Jesus who reigns over heaven and earth. Psalm 2 not only explains what is happening in the world and why things are the way that they are, but it also gives us the only answer that can fix it. I've titled today's message simply, The Lord Reigns. As we move into our text, it is my hope to point you to this faithful truth that is so clearly seen in the second Psalm. It is this, Jesus Christ is King. He reigns, He rules with absolute authority over the nations. He is a righteous judge, and He is a refuge to those who humbly come to Him. Please join me as we read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Please join me in prayer this morning. Father, we come before you this morning humbled that you have given us your word. Humbled that you have sent your son to save all who call upon your name. Father, I ask that you would guard my mouth this morning, that your word would be spoke clearly, that your truth would be proclaimed, that all that we do today be to bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning we're going to work through Psalm 2 in four parts or four sections. First, the rebellion of nations. This is verses 1 through 3. Second, God in heaven, verses 4 through 6. Third, God's decree, verses 7 through 9. And four, the anointed king, verses 10 through 12. Now the text of Psalm 2 was written by David. And the context here is that King David is giving an exhortation to the pagan nations that surround Israel to lay down their efforts to oppose the Lord and his anointed king, King David. He urges these pagan nations to submit to the authority that God has ordained for his people. And that, of course, again, is King David, the Lord's anointed king of Israel. However, in the age of the church, which is the age that we find ourselves in time and history, this is where we're at today, there is a broader context to Psalm 2 for us. We see that the nations rage against God and against his anointed king, King Jesus. And this psalm urges the nations and the peoples of the world to submit to the authority of Christ, the King. Uh, Let us begin with verses 1 through 3, the rebellion of nations. Again, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In the opening verse, the psalmist asks this question Why do the nations rage? Uh, This question really requires no response, it's not intended or meant to be answered. Rather, it's used to make a dramatic point. Here, the psalmist is mystified, shocked that the nations dare to rise in opposition to God. The psalmist poses this rhetorical question in amazement that the nations and the people of the world would have the audacity to rage and plot against God's authority. Why do they rage? Verse 1 plainly tells us, that all of this raging, this conspiring, this scheming and plotting will come to nothing. It's all in vain, for they plot against he who sits enthroned in heaven. To help us grasp what is being said in verse 1, we could restate the idea from the psalmist this way. Why do the nations bother? Why do they attempt such a foolish thing that is so certain to fail? You see, the psalmist is not worried He knows the absolute futility of anyone raging against God. He's simply expressing astonishment that they would do so. Moving to verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, before we work through the kings and the rulers, I think it is only right to acknowledge the use of the word anointed here. When we see this word, anointed, appear in the Old Testament, it is the Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means Messiah. It's interesting to note that this Hebrew word, when translated into Greek, which is predominantly what the New Testament is written in, becomes the word Christos, from which we get the word Christ. You see, Christ is not the last name of Jesus No, it's Jesus' title. Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. So in our text today, well, King David is the anointed king of Israel in the immediate context. Like all of scripture, this verse in its broader context points to Jesus Christ, the anointed king, the king of kings. All right, now we'll return to the main point of verse 2, the kings and the rulers who set themselves against the Lord. Nations raging against God is, is not a new thing. We can look all the way back early in the Bible to the time of the Tower of Babel, and men have conspired together against God and His word. As early as Genesis 9, after the flood, God told Noah and his descendants, to be fruitful and multiply and go and fill the earth. Just two short chapters later in Genesis 11, we see Noah's descendants setting themselves up against what God said and building a city with a mighty tower up into the heavens, pridefully seeking to build a name for themselves rather than living in obedience to the Lord who told them to spread out and fill the earth. The men of Babel set themselves against the Lord They conspired together against God and what he commanded them to do. God said, do this. And they conspired together and did that. Of course, we know how this narrative goes. The men of Babel don't get very far before God's sovereignty scatters them, confusing their languages. The Lord's will is done, but still they raged against him. They did not do what God said. Another example we can look to of kings and rulers and nations that rage against God. We can look to Herod, king of Judea. In the book of Matthew it's told that it was prophesied, of course, that Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And what did King Herod do? Did he humble himself before the Son of God? Did Herod seek out where Jesus lived? And like the wise men, did he too offer the Messiah king Uh, Gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and worship him? No, of course not. King Herod, the ruler of Judea, concerned with his own rule, raged against God. He ordered that all of the baby boys, two years old and under, in the vicinity of Bethlehem, be slaughtered. King Herod set himself against the Lord, conspiring that he would slay the Lord's anointed, the Messiah King, We know that, of course, the child Jesus was not harmed and Herod's evil plan accomplished none of what he hoped to achieve. We don't have time today to look at every example of nations and countries and rulers that have raged throughout Scripture against God. Other examples that come to mind, the the Philistines and Goliath, who defied the armies of God. He said that. The worshipers of Molech in the Old Testament who were idol worshipers and sacrificed not only babies but children as live offerings to their pagan god. They raged against God. They conspired together against him. They did what was right in their own eyes. There are many more we could look at, but this morning, let us also look to this current age. Today, the nations still rage people still plot in vain. The kings and the rulers still set themselves against the Lord. As we learned so many times, as Pastor John led us in the study of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. We can consider no further, and parents, I apologize for any graphic details here, but it is important. Consider no further than the sexual perversion that is occurring all around us. Instead of remorse for sin today, People and nations are proud of their rebellion. Today, sin is rarely even hidden or shamed. It's open and proudly paraded in front of God. The sexual revolution of the 60s turned into broad acceptance of homosexuality and then the demands that all mankind accept transgenderism. Oh, and it grieves me greatly to hear that even today, what is being called attraction to minors is being talked about as something that is, should be socially accepted. Friends, the nations are still raging against God. As of late, we've seen men and women rioting and demanding access to abortion. Brazen women proudly boast of how many abortions they've had. Around the world, leaders and governments vow to do all that is in their power to ensure abortion remains free and accessible for all. Friends, the nations are still raging against God. This world's a mess, and the reason why is evident. People are fighting against God, God's law, God's word, and the rulers and the people of the world scheme against him. Looking to verse 3 of Psalm 2, those who rage against God say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, this is the epitome of nations rebelling against God, isn't it? They want to be free of God. They want to cast down His laws, no longer burdened by Him, so to speak. It says bonds and cords. The world views God and His law like it's chains and shackles to be freed from. But we think of God's laws... Think of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall have no other gods before me. These are the bonds and cords that the world is violently raging against and conspiring to be freed from. These things bring life. These are God's grace to us to show us right from wrong. And yet the nations wish to break free from these. In these first three verses of Psalm 2, we see the resounding theme. The nations hate God. They want to be free of Him, and they believe they are their own God. This is the rebellion of nations. Next, we'll move forward into the second part of Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6. God in heaven. Uh, Verses 4 through 6. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Scripture says that when foolish, prideful men think that they, the created, can stand against the Lord, the creator, Scripture says, he who sits in heaven laughs. God looks down from heaven, from upon his throne in glory, Down upon men who he has created, who rise up against him, and he laughs at their foolishness. Psalm 37, 13 reinstates this point. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Friends, if you are a follower of Christ today, I hope you know that we serve an almighty God. Scripture says that he is a strong tower. Proverbs 18.10, a fortress, Psalm 46.7, and a rock, Psalm 18.2. Our God is not shaken, though the nations rage <clears throat> and plot against Him. Scripture says that He holds them in derision, meaning He mocks and ridicules their ridiculous attempts. Moving forward, verses 5 and 6, the Word says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. These verses tell of the time that is coming when God will judge the world. He will not remain silent forever to those who plot and scheme against his sovereign rule. Though he has shown grace and he has sent his son to make a way for all who believe. The nations still rage and people still plot in vain. God has set his king in place. He does not change because men rise up against his ways. God accomplishes all his holy will. Psalm 115.3 makes this abundantly clear. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God has appointed his son, Jesus Christ the Lord, as king, mediator, and high priest. All right? That's what it says in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. William S. Plumer, a 19th century pastor, speaking on God appointing his son as the anointed king, said these words and I found them beneficial as I studied. Quote, Christ is God's equal, God's fellow, God's son, God's firstborn, God's only begotten, and is by him chosen and set up as king forever. End quote. Dear ones, Christ reigns supremely. He reigns in every true believer's heart. He reigns as God's anointed king. And the day is coming when he will judge the nations in righteousness, just as verses 5 and 6 state with wrath and with fury against unrighteousness. Scriptures are full of uh, many words about the coming judgment. Uh, While we love to dwell on the love and kindness of God in Christ Jesus, and that certainly is true. Let us never forget that he will judge. Psalm 98.9 confirms this. He will judge the world with righteousness and people with equity. Again, back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the council of the wicked. His righteousness is Christ. Or the other path, wickedness and the mire of sin. That's it. Those are the only things. Those are the only options. Let us move forward again into the third part of Psalm 2, looking at verses 7 through 9. God's decree. Verses 7-9 through say, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." So let's look at verse 7 first. Here in verse 7, the psalm speaks of God's decree. God's decree. That is God's eternal plan. By which he foreordained in eternity past, before time, everything that comes to pass. Why? For his own glory and his own purpose. Here in verse 7, it's actually... Christ speaking of what God the Father has said to the Son, right? Look at at the verse. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. What we see in this verse is the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace can be described this way. The agreement God the Father made with Christ concerning his elect people to save them from their sins where in the covenant of grace, Christ undertook to keep the whole law for his people and to suffer the punishment due to their sins. A simpler way to describe this is as follows. You you may have heard it before. God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. This is God's decree, the covenant of grace. This is his will. Verse 8 says that the nations are Christ's heritage, and the ends of the earth, his possession. Everything is placed under the authority, under the kingship of God's anointed, Jesus. We see here hope for all nations. Not just the line of David and the specific people and nation of Israel, but for all nations, Gentiles alike, that come to him through faith. The nations are Christ's heritage. The end of the earth is his possession. He is king, and the covenant of grace applies to all. This is God's decree. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-seven affirms this for us. When it says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. His feet being Christ. Look with me at, uh, at verse 9 of this psalm. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Friends, Christ will judge the nations. Those who will not bend their knee and bow before him in submission in this life will be crushed under his righteous judgment in the life to come in eternity. Dear ones, these words are not lighthearted, I know. But may they motivate us to be sure that we are in right standing with Christ and also burden us for those who we know who are not right with the Lord. Finally, let us move forward into the final part of Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. The anointed king. uh, Read with me here, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. In verse 10, we see a warning. The peoples, the nations, and the rulers who are raging against God and against Christ Jesus, the anointed King, they are warned to be wise. Wise like the blessed man of Psalm 1 who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit among those who would scoff at God. With this warning, perhaps some of these people, these nations, these rulers, will turn from their raging and learn to delight in the law of God. That is my prayer. I hope that is yours. In verse 11, the warning continues. The anointed king should be served with fear, for he is the Lord, and he is righteous. Proverbs 1.7 tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We should not be afraid, for he is good, but we should have a fear of God, a fear of the Lord. Verse 11 also says, to rejoice with trembling. Because those who submit and serve the king can be joyful at his abundant mercy and grace. But they, but we, should also tremble at his perfect holiness. Because we are not holy, and he is. Psalm 97.5 says, The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So too should we tremble before him. And finally, in verse 12, in the first part of the final verse, it says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Kiss the sun. This is not a kiss of love friends. It is a kiss of loyalty and submission, just as one would bow or grovel at the feet of a king and kiss his royal ring or scepter to swear allegiance. Jesus Christ is the king. Both man and nations will either serve him now or face his righteous wrath at the end of time. Kiss the Son. Psalm 2 makes it clear with this warning, to be wise, that it's not too late for those nations, those peoples that rage, who set themselves against God. There's hope to turn now and serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling at his holiness, and to kiss the Son, submitting to the rule of the sovereign king who is Lord over all. And the final words of Psalm 2 say... Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How fitting it is that Psalm 2 begins with the turmoil of nations that rage against the Lord. Yet Psalm 2 ends with the blessing of those who humbly trust in him. The Lord, the Savior, King who conquered over death, sin, and the grave and now stands triumphantly as king forevermore. Now as we come to the application for this text for the Christian in the room perhaps you are asking how this text applies to you since you've sworn your allegiance to the king you have received mercy and grace through Christ and you serve him I pray you serve him with fear and trembling what does this text mean for the Christian dear brothers and sisters the people in the nation still rage against God As Christ followers, as servants of the king, he has called us to take the good news to the ends of the earth, to those who foolishly plan their own demise as they plot and conspire against the Lord ignorantly. We are to call upon the enemies of the king to humbly submit themselves to his sovereign rule, where they too, they also can find refuge in the king's grace and be saved from his coming wrath, which will be poured out against all unrighteousness. Christians, when the nations rage and conspire against the Lord, how do you respond? Do you point them to Christ the King? Do you speak his word? God's word is the only answer. The gospel, the good news, that though all of us are sinners, and have raged against God and have rebelled like the nations. Christ is perfectly righteous and has fulfilled the law, the law that we could never keep, we could never do, so that all who place their trust in him are covered with his righteousness and are shown grace and mercy and can serve the king with gladness as we see the world around us and ask, what is going on as the world comes unglued constantly with sin and destruction? Do you point them to the Lord? We should. If you are in this room today and you don't know Jesus Christ, what He has done for sinners, I would love to talk to you. There are people in this room who too can testify to his goodness and his grace. He is sovereign, he is king, he is coming to judge the nations, but he is good and he has made a way. By his stripes we are healed. By his death on the cross, though perfectly righteous, dying a sinner's death, conquering over death, we can be made righteous. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that your son is king. Lord, we come humbly before you, acknowledging that we too have rebelled against you. For those in the room who have received your grace, God, we... Thank you. Father, you are good. We thank you for this time today. We ask that you would be honored and praised in our worship as we go. Father, you are good. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, Please contact us at infothevillagemi.com. At Until next time, stay in God's Word.